I'm delighted that you're here tonight, and I hope you've had time this afternoon, if you were here this morning at least, that you've had time this afternoon to read through Acts chapter 21, which is the text for our study tonight. If you haven't had the chance to do that, we'll try to catch you up as we go along, but if you've read through Acts 21, your study, I think, will be enhanced having read that. Acts chapter 21 is setting in the context of Acts 18 through 21, which deals with the third missionary journey. And in that journey, we have Paul, that begins back in Acts chapter 18, by the way, beginning about verse uh, 23, where the journey begins. And as Paul revisits the churches of Galatia and Phrygia, and then makes his way finally to Ephesus in chapter 19 and preaches and teaches at Ephesus and works with the church there for a while. And then he makes his way back through, I mean, he makes his way on into Macedonia and into Greece and then comes back to Miletus and visits the elders of the church at Ephesus. And that's where we leave him in Acts chapter 20. So Acts chapter 21 picks up there on this leg of the journey right here as we just outlined there picks up at Miletus and makes their way down to Tyre and then Ptolemaeus and then to Caesarea and then finally to Jerusalem where he is arrested. And then the rest of the book deals with his trial and the struggles that he deals with from his arrest at Jerusalem. So that's Acts chapter 21. Now let's go back through Acts 21 and where our purpose is not just to analyze the whole chapter. I want to look at some things found in that chapter, but let's see what the chapter is about. Work our way through that and get a summary of the chapter before we get into what the text actually teaches us. I call this chapter simply ending the third journey and Paul arrested at Jerusalem. Those are two major thoughts. Let's talk first of all about verses 1 to 17. We take Paul from Miletus where he was visiting with the elders of the church at Ephesus and he makes his way down to Jerusalem. And that's where he is by the time we get to verse 17. We're not going to read all of these verses. We're going to summarize, but look at verses 1 to 3. This is simply telling us that he sailed from Miletus and where he sailed and what he passed by until he comes to Tyre. And the text says he found some disciples that were there and that they, verse 4, told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem because, of course, the danger that he would face there. And then the text goes on further, beginning at verse 4, telling us that they stayed seven days entire with those, uh, with those disciples, and then they took leave from there, beginning now at verse uh, 7 through 9. I noticed that he came to Caesarea, and he stayed with Philip, Philip the evangelist, who had four virgin daughters. And he stayed there with them for a while, and while he was there, the prophet Agabus, we're at point D on our outline here, the prophet Agabus came and foretold of Paul's arrest. Then imprisonment, he took his belt and said, the man who owns this belt, and he binds himself in symbolic fashion, saying the same man that owns this is going to be bound in Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound. Paul was determined to go, beginning at verse 12. Anyway, he complained to those that were telling him not to go, that you're breaking my heart. We'll get to that in a few moments, what that means. But he was determined, I'm going to go anyway to Jerusalem. No, despite the danger, I'm going to Jerusalem anyway. They concluded the Lord's will be done, and so they quit talking to him about that. Well, then we come down to verse 15, beginning he decides to go to Jerusalem, and he does, and when he gets there, we end at verse 17, the first section that he came, and there was one named Nason who came with them, an early disciple of Cyprus, with whom they lodged, and they came to Jerusalem, and the brethren received us gladly. So we've taken him from Miletus to Jerusalem. 
Now, beginning at verse 18 through the end of the chapter, we have Paul arrested at Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he goes before James and the elders, verses 18 to 25. What the elders inform him concerning is that they, they, the Jews, the converted Jews, those young in the faith, those Christians, and there are many of them, have heard rumors about you and there are false rumors about you, Paul. And there's going to be trouble in this city because of these rumors that have been circulating. And we'll get to what those rumors were in just a moment. And so what we suggest to you is that you offset that by doing this. That there are four men who've taken a vow and that you go to the temple. What they're going to say and what they are saying is that you're against Moses. And they're saying that you are telling people not to keep the custom of the Jews. And that people ought not be circumcised at all, period. And that's not true. So we suggest that you take these four men and you pay their expense as you go to take care of that. And when you do that, that's going to demonstrate that you're not against the custom of the Jews. And so he does that. So Paul went to the temple where there was an uproar when some saw him in the temple. And some said, we saw him in there with a Gentile, which was not true. And so there was an uproar over that and there was chaos over that. And he was arrested in the midst of that. And so he was arrested, and then Paul was given permission to speak when he asked, could he speak for himself? And he was given permission to speak. And then another accusation was made against him that perhaps he was this Egyptian that had led in some kind of uproar. And we'll get to that here in just a few moments. I want to suggest to you that this chapter, Acts chapter 21, is more of a chapter that is historical. There is no sermon that is preached. There is no teaching that is recorded. In other words, there's not a section here like we see in Acts 22 where he gives his defense and there is much teaching found there. There's nothing like that here in Acts chapter 21. This is historical. There are several characters that are mentioned in this context. In fact, in the whole story, obviously there is Paul, who is part of the story. There is Philip, the evangelist. There is the four daughters of Philip that are mentioned in this context. There is Agabus, a prophet, who is mentioned. There is Nason, who was from Cyprus, with whom they lodged. There is James and the elders, and then there are four unnamed men who had taken a vow. That is part of the story. There is Trophimus, who, with whom Paul had associated, who was a Gentile, who was a Greek, who had not been taken into the temple, but the accusation was he had been there. And then there is this commander who is later in the next chapter, or two chapters later, in fact, chapter 23, and then again in chapter 24, is identified as Claudius Lysias. So there's several characters in Acts 21. And I want to suggest to you that all of these are people who made a difference in history. And so with that in mind, I want us to talk about people who make a difference. And there are several in this context. So our purpose is not to do an, a textual study and work our way through every verse of Acts 21. But I want to look at several people who make a difference. And perhaps you find yourself plugged into this. Where do you fit in Acts 21? Now, obviously, you are not living in the time of uh, the history of Acts 21. And you're not literally there. But perhaps you can plug yourself into there. Maybe you're one of these characters that are there. And let's see if we can find ourselves in this chapter. First of all, let's look at this. Here's someone who made a difference. There was the man whose children spoke volumes. There was the man whose children spoke volumes. And this is found in verses 8 and 9. And there was a man named Philip. The next day when they... Uh, well, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. 
He said, well, that's interesting history. Let's move on to the next one. I learned a lot from that, those two verses. I want to suggest to you that Philip wore many hats. In fact, the last time we saw him was after the conversion of the eunuch, and he went to Azotus, and that's the last we saw of him. Haven't seen him since Acts 8. And that was about 20 years earlier. He was an evangelist. He preached to the gospel in Samaria. You remember in Acts chapter 8, when the Samaritans heard the gospel, he was there preaching to them. So he was an evangelist. He was the man who preached to the eunuch and baptized him. And so he's preaching the gospel, whether to a crowd or whether to one-on-one. He was an evangelist preaching the gospel. He was one of the seven in Acts chapter 6. You remember when they looked out, uh, Paul, the apostles said, look out among you seven men of honest report whom we may appoint over this business. He was one of the seven, which means he was a servant. I don't know that those were deacons as per the exact same thing of deacons, but it's the same principle of deacons or servants. And so he was a servant. He was one who was willing to serve, not necessarily always wanting the limelight. So I'm already impressed that he's a man who preaches the gospel and he's a man who serves, not interested in the limelight. But I want to tell you, he was a host. He was very hospitable. And I learned that in this text that he kept Paul and his companions. They went to Caesarea and they came to Philip uh, the evangelist and they stayed with Philip the evangelist. And while there, there's some others who came like Agabus that we'll talk about in a moment. But he also wore the hat of being a father. He was the father of four daughters. In fact, they were virgins who prophesied. But I want to suggest to you that what I learned from this context in verses 8 and 9 is he did well in the rearing of his daughters. Let's go back and read the text again at verse 9. There was a man, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Remember now, they were virgins. That means they were morally pure. It tells me a whole lot about how he reared and raised his four daughters. It says something about his training. They prophesied, which suggests they were faithful, they were trained well, they were taught well, if they were those that were prophets. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14, which means they could have gone and taught error, but they were remaining faithful. They, they prophesied, the text says. That says a whole lot about the rearing and the raising of these daughters. What they were spoke volumes about Philip, though. I'm impressed with the four daughters. If you could put yourself back in the time and you go and you visit the household of Philip and he said, here are my four daughters, and you learn they are virgins, they are pure, and they prophesied, I'm impressed with them. But I'm most impressed with Philip, looking at his daughters. How so? It says something about his example, doesn't it? I take it that he was not a man who was living ungodly, but he raised four virgin daughters. I take it that he was not a man who was impure morally, but he yet still raised four virgin daughters. It tells me a whole lot about his example. It tells me a whole lot about his setting of rules in his household for their moral purity, for their faithfulness. It says a whole lot about what he permitted and did not permit in his household. There were things he didn't allow in the rearing of those daughters. There are things he wouldn't permit them to do. There are places he would not let them go if he raised four virgin daughters. It says something about how strict he was. Apparently it was not one of those parents that just turned the reins loose and let them raise themselves and let's let them decide for themselves if they want to be virgins and let's let them decide for themselves if they want to be faithful and do they want to be the kind of people who are true and faithful to the Lord. But rather he held some reins apparently tells me something about how strict he was. It tells me about his priorities. 
I learned from that he was not a man who didn't have his priorities straight, who was a man who was more concerned about material things or maybe more concerned about wealth or maybe more concerned about pleasure than he was serving the Lord. He had his priorities straight. If he raised four virgin daughters who prophesied. And here's what I learned from that. You make a difference when you train your children well. We're talking about people who make a difference. Philip made a difference, didn't he? Here was a man whose daughter spoke volumes. And your children speak volumes. You see, when you're focused on them maintaining moral purity and the rearing and the raising of your children, when you well instill in your children to flee sexual immorality, and you tell them how to flee, how to avoid that, how to remain pure, how to be a virgin, Perhaps that says volumes about you. When you lead them to be faithful by your example, Ezekiel 16, says, like mother, like daughter, often the children turn out to be just like they were trained. They see the example of their parents and they do the same. That speaks volumes, perhaps concerning you. When you can look around and you maybe have four daughters that prophesy, not literally, but, but you may have those kind of children that are the pure and they are also faithful. That says a great deal about your priorities and how you led them to be faithful. It says something about what you put as important in your life. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I've seen people whose priorities were not right and their children went astray and that says a great deal about them. How you rear and raise your children has a lot to do with how, oh, the, the difference that you make. And you show them how to be active in the service of the Lord, that you're one who is diligent and faithful like Titus 2 and in verse 14, being zealous unto good works. Perhaps you're instructing them in the way of the Lord, teaching them like Ephesians 6, bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You see, you make a difference in how you raise your children, just like Philip did. But that's not the only person that made a difference in this context. I see a man whose heart was breaking in verses 12 to 14. And that's the Apostle Paul himself. I see a man whose heart was breaking. Now let's back up before we get to verse 12. Let's back up to verse 10. There was a prophet named Agabus who came to Philip's household while Paul and his companions were visiting there. Agabus came and he prophesied concerning Paul being bound in Jerusalem. Let's see what he said. Beginning of verse 10, he said, We stayed there many days, and a certain man, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And uh, verse 11 says, When he came to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. In other words, he received this by revelation of the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now notice beginning at verse 12, when they heard these things, both we and those who, who from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So here was the prophecy. The, the man that owns this, Paul is going to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound, turned over to the Gentile. Well, the companions began to plead with Paul and began to weep with Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. This prophet is telling us by the Spirit of God, you're going to Jerusalem and you'll be arrested and you'll be bound and turned over to the Gentile. Don't go. Don't go. You're only asking for trouble. Now notice at verse 13, Paul said, this is breaking my heart. Paul answered and said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? The idea of breaking simply suggests to crush together or to dispirit. In other words, he was determined to go anyway, as he reveals at verse 13 and verse 14 and the verses following. 
And he said, you're breaking my heart. I'm going to go in spite of the danger. I've been told, yes, and by the Spirit, and I do recognize that the prophet has said I'm going to be bound in Jerusalem. I know that, and I understand that, but I'm going anyway in spite of the danger. And what are you saying is their pleas of him not going was pounding at his heart. A.T. Robertson suggested it weakened his determination to go on with his duty. I am determined to go on with my duty, and you're weakening that. Why are you breaking my heart, he said. He wanted to do the right thing, and they were begging him not to go. And what I want you to notice is this display, Paul's total commitment and complete sacrifice. Notice what he says. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I am determined to go. I am determined I'm going no matter what danger there may be. So why are you breaking my heart? So now notice verse 14. So when we could not be, when he could would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, thus the will of the Lord be done. That mean they quit saying the Lord will of the Lord be done. They quit saying, don't go. And they begin to say, the will of the Lord be done. If you're determined to go, if you're determined, you go ahead and go. So when the brethren saw that determination, they stopped weeping and pleading, and they began to say, well, if that's the will of the Lord, and you're determined to go, the will of the Lord be done. We're not going to keep breaking your heart. Well, there's some things to be learned from that that are very practical, I think. And I want to suggest to you that there are those today who want to do the right thing, and yet others are breaking their heart. How so? I've known of people who wanted to go to church, but the family says, you better stay home today. Maybe it's someone who's getting older. Well, you're getting too old to go to church. You're, you're, getting, you're too feeble to get out. And I want to go to church, but no, you need to stay home. They're well able to go, but the family tells them you need to stay home. They're breaking their heart. Don't ever do that to someone. You're breaking their heart. Let them do what they're determined to do if it's the will of the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. You're breaking my heart. You're dispiriting my determination to do what I know to be right, he said. Maybe they're children who want to go to class and the parents won't take them and they're breaking the hearts of the children when they don't take them. Or maybe it's the parent who wants to discipline their child but their mate says, no, you're not going to do that. Here's one parent determined to do what's right but the other one is not determined to follow the will of the Lord and you're breaking their heart by so telling them they can't discipline the child. Or maybe there's one who wants to follow their conscience and they don't want to violate their conscience because they recognize violating your conscience is sin. And yet their friends ridicule them and they're breaking their heart because they're ridiculing their following their conscience. Here was a man who made a difference. His heart was breaking. And he was determined to go anyway. Here's another person who makes or people who make a difference. And that is the people who were misinformed in verses 20 and 21. The people who were misinformed. Let's look at verse 20. Now, this is when Paul came to Jerusalem, as we've already mentioned. When he got there, he met with the elders, James and the elders that were present, and they greeted him, and they told him, in and he told them all the details of the things concerning his ministry among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, notice verse 20, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads, or thousands, that is, of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying you ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. 
Now we'll come back to that context here in just a moment. But what I want you to notice is that there were Jewish Christians who had been misinformed. And the elders are informing Paul of that. Now, who is it that's been misinformed? Apparently, these are new converts who are zealous for the law. New Jewish converts. How many of them were misinformed? Well, he said myriads, or that is thousands, some translations will say, which shows how serious this misinformation was. This is spread far and wide of people saying things about Paul and what he teaches and what he's saying and what he's demanding, and it's all gone out in his misinformation. Now, who is responsible for that misinformation circulating? I don't know. Well, the text doesn't say. It certainly wasn't the new converts because they're the ones being told that. Perhaps it's some of the Jewish teachers who knew better and knew Paul did not say that and they're trying to prejudice people against Paul. That's perhaps the most logical. It could be people who simply didn't listen to the teaching of Paul, got bits and pieces and then put the pieces together and added a little bit and made up a conclusion that wasn't there. That could be possible. So what were they told? What was the misinformation? Well, let's go back to our context. Let's look at verse 21. They, they are being told, Paul, that you're telling the Jews to forsake Moses. They're saying you're against Moses. They're saying that you're telling them to forsake Moses and forget Moses and disregard anything about Moses. They're saying you're telling people not to circumcise their children. They're not talking about you shouldn't circumcise them in order to be saved as a condition of salvation. They're just saying you're telling people not to circumcise their children. You're telling Jews they're not to practice circumcision, even as a custom. And that wasn't true. They're telling that you're saying not to walk according to the customs of the Jews. Now notice at verse 21, you might circle or underline this word customs at the end of verse 21. They're saying, you're telling the Jews, don't follow the customs of the Jews. That's what they're saying. That's the misinformation that's been given out. And so the Christians have been misinformed. Let's talk about what the truth is. The truth is the law of Moses regulated their civil and their social and their spiritual life. When the law ceased, they still kept some of the customs. They could abstain from certain foods, like in Romans 14 that the law forbid, but they were not to practice that as a religious practice, but they could conscientiously abstain from some food. That's keeping the customs of the Jews. They could do that. Romans 14 argues for that. They could still circumcise their children. Galatians 5 says circumcision or uncircumcision avails in it. Doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. God didn't care. They could still circumcise their children. So here's what Paul had taught. We know what the truth is. What he had taught is the law of Moses had ended. That's not saying you disregard Moses. Moses himself had talked about the coming of a new law through, that is, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. What Paul taught is that that means that you're not saved by obeying the law of Moses. Romans chapter 3 verse 28. Verse 20 and verse 28. And that they were not to teach that one was to be circumcised in order to be saved, but they, he was not teaching that you could not circumcise at all. In fact, in Acts 16, he took Timothy and had him circumcised. But Paul wasn't teaching that at all, nor was he teaching not to keep the custom of the Jews. Paul hadn't taught that at all. Now, what I want to suggest to you is there's a lot of misinformation circulating around today because, about us. The elder said, Paul, there's some misinformation circulating around, and, and here's the truth, and we need to set this matter straight about that. Well, the same thing is true today. 
Sometimes there's misinformation circulating about what we teach and practice. Perhaps you've heard the rumor and perhaps you've faced the rumor where someone says, they don't have music in worship. Oh yeah, y'all are, are at that church where they don't have music in worship. Oh yeah, we have music. Singing is music, by the way. What they're trying to say, but perhaps putting a little twist on that to, to be somehow, uh, to create some prejudice against us, they're saying they don't have music in worship or something else. They don't believe in instruments can be used even in secular songs. They're against pianos. They're against guitars. They're against all of those kinds of things. And they won't even practice that in secular things. Oh, you can't have a piano in the home. And you couldn't play the, uh, the Star Spangled Banner on the piano because they don't believe in instrumental music at all. That's misinformation. Or they don't believe in taking care of little orphans. They let them starve. That's misinformation. Or they don't believe in church cooperation. They don't believe in churches cooperating. And that's far from the truth. I don't know if anyone does, doesn't believe in church cooperation. Or they believe that water saves. That's, they believe in water salvation. Or they don't believe that you should study or read the Old Testament. Or y'all are the people that don't believe you should read the Old Testament. And yet we study the Old Testament all the time. We're reading and studying it all the time. I want to suggest to you that sometimes the misinformation is about motives and reactions or what someone meant. There's misinformation circulating all the time about that kind of thing. Here's what I'm learning from this, very practical. Don't believe everything you hear about someone or some church. What I'm learning from the elders is they're saying, the information was false, it's rumoring about you, and thousands of Jews have been told about this, Paul. Don't believe everything you hear about someone, about what they teach or what they believe. Don't believe everything that you hear. Be open to correction that is given. That's what the elders are trying to do in this context. We're going to see more about that here in a moment. They're open to correction. They're saying, Paul, you be open to correction. Make sure you clarify all of this misinformation. And thirdly, I'm learning to be prepared to correct that misinformation. If you're repeating misinformation that you've heard and you've been corrected, then be ready to set forth that misinformation as being in misinformation and to correct that. But here's something else. I want to look at a man. Here's somebody who made a difference. Here is the man who demonstrated his conviction. And he did that by following the suggestion of these elders, beginning at verse 22. Let's get the context. Let's talk about what their advice was. What was the advice of these elders? Now, these very elders that said, Paul, there are thousands of Jews that have been misinformed about what you They're saying false things about you. And we've got some advice for you. Here's what that advice is. Let's begin at verse 22. They said, what then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. The word's going to get out that you're in Jerusalem. And we've got, we got to deal, deal with it. Therefore... Do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Who are those four men? We're not told. They're not named. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads and that they may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. You might circle or underline the word law and connect that back with customs of verse 21 because that's what the law means in this context. More about that in a moment. Here's what it was their answer. They said there are many Christians that they're going to know you're here. They're going to learn about this. And there are four men. And what we suggest you take these four men that have taken the vow. Likely that's the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. 
And you can associate with them and one could associate with them by going into the temple with them and paying their expense and showing you're keeping the customs of the Jews. And so we suggest you do that. Now you may have got that idea from Paul shaving himself in Acts chapter 18 and verse 18. Now here's what that would show. Notice at verse 24. At verse 24, take them and be purified and pay their expense. And notice now the wording, that they may all know that the things which they were informed concerning you are nothing. Here's what that's going to do. That's going to show that what was rumored was wrong. That's going to demonstrate you keep the law or the customs of the law. No, Paul was not keeping the law because he thought he ought to keep the law. He's keeping the customs of the law. Again, underline or circle the word customs in verse 21. That's what that would demonstrate. Now, verse 25, the elders want to be clear about the matter. We want you and we suggest you take these four men and you pay their price and you go through the custom with them and you show you're being a part of that and you're going to demonstrate you do keep the customs of the Jews. You're not against that at all. But we want to be clear. What do you mean? Well, let's let the elders speak for themselves. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, who have written and decided they should observe no such thing except they should keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. What is that all about? They're saying the action that we're talking about of taking these four men into the temple, what we're saying that action is not against the conclusions of the Jerusalem meeting of Acts 15. Because you cannot read verse 25 and not think about Acts 15. If, you, if you're not thinking about Acts 15, we're not familiar with Acts 15. Acts 15 is almost directly quoted in verse 24 or verse 25. So what they're saying is these actions are not against that conclusion of Acts chapter 15. Not at all. Our position hasn't changed. We're not softening on that position. The law is not to be bound upon the Gentiles. That's not what we're saying. All we're trying to demonstrate, Paul, is the rumor against you is false. And you can demonstrate that. So what did Paul do? Look at verse 26 and 27. Paul followed their advice. Paul followed their advice. He didn't just tell, but he showed his belief. Look at verse 26. He took them in the next day, and having been purified, he entered the temple and announced the uh, expiration of the days of purification, at which time the, uh, an offering should be made for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews of Asia, seeing that he was in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. He did exactly what the elders told him. He didn't just say, here's, my, here's what I believe. Here's where I've been mis misrepresented. He demonstrated and showed his belief. Actions speak louder than words. What he's doing, he's practicing what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. That is, when he was among the Jews, he behaved as Jews. And among the Gentiles, as Gentiles. He became all things to all men. That's what he's saying. Here is a case of him putting his mouth where uh, his money where his mouth is, so to speak. Jeremiah did that. Do you remember from Jeremiah 32? Jeremiah was saying, we're going to come back into the land. In Jeremiah 32, he bought a field to show I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm not just talking a good talk. I'm going to demonstrate I believe what I'm saying. Ezra did the same thing. Remember in Ezra 8 when he said that there is no need for an escort? I've been telling, and the reason we won't accept an escort is because I've been saying God would be with us. And if I ask for an escort, that shows I'm not willing to put my money where my mouth is. So I'm not asking for an escort. We believe God will be with us. And we need to do the very same thing. I want to suggest there are going to be times people are watching you to see if you'll demonstrate your convictions. Here's what you say. Here's what you, but are you going to be willing to do that? 
Are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Here was a man who was determined to demonstrate his convictions. Let's go to verse 28 now. Here's some more people that make a difference. And that's the people that are caught up in a mob. Remember where we left off in our, our reading just a moment ago, verse 27, that when they saw him in the temple, there began to be an uproar. Now, we're not through with that uproar. We, we're ready to take a look at that uproar. And we'll see how the, the mob operated now. Here's how they operated. There were a few that stirred all the rest. Go back to verse 27. And the Jews from Asia, seeing he was in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Here's a few. I don't know how many there were, but they weren't the whole crowd. They stirred up the whole crowd. That's how a mob works. There's a few that stirs up the rest. They operate on untrue reports and suppositions. Look at verse 28 and 29. They cried out saying, men of Israel, this is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And furthermore, here's another charge. Furthermore, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. Where on earth did they get that idea? Well, previously they had seen Trophimus, an Ephesian, with him in the city and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They saw Paul and Trophimus together. They saw Paul in the temple. They put two and two together and they made six. They assume some things. That's how a mob mentality works. They got a lot of people upset. We won't trace every verse, but look at verse 30. That uh, they uh, dragged him out of the temple and the people ran together. They, the city was disturbed. Look at verse 31. There was, the city was in an uproar. Look at verse 34. That Verse 34 says there was such carrying on that he, they could not ascertain the truth. Verse 35, there was the violence of the mob. Here is this mob mentality of everyone getting upset over all the matter. There's great confusion to the point that the commander can't determine what some were saying one thing, some were saying something else. The charges didn't all agree. He couldn't make heads or tails of what was being said. Again, we have this mob mentality. They acted rash. Notice at verse 31 that they, uh, they were seeking to kill him. They found him with a thought, no evidence, with a Gentile in the temple. They're ready to kill him. Look at verse 32. They were beating him. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 26, or verse 36, rather, that they were crying out, away with him. They want the man done away with. That's how the mob operated. But furthermore, I want to suggest to you that often we see the same herd mentality or the bandwagon effect, much like this, this crowd. There was many people that didn't know what was going on, but they all jump on the bandwagon. Away with him, away with him. What's he done? I don't know, but he's done something bad. We have the same kind of mentality. Everyone's doing it. That's the herd mentality. I want us to do that, and I see nothing wrong, because everybody's doing it. Or most people believe. Really? Most people believed in this crowd Paul was wrong. Does that make him wrong? When we can easily be swayed by the group or by the majority, we're involved in that same kind of mob mentality. Or we have the peer pressure, like in Proverbs chapter 1, where the crowd is saying, come be one of us. Cast your lot among us. Let's be of one purse. That same kind of mob mentality. Let's go to verse 38 now. Here's someone else who made a difference. That's the man who made assumptions. Verse 38, he was arrested. The commander finally stops him from beating him. And pulls Paul's away and puts him under arrest, and now he's, he's arrested. Formally and officially, he's arrested. 
And we get down to verse 37, when Paul was about to be led into the barracks, the commander said to you, uh, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied saying, can you speak Greek? And are you not the Egyptian that some time ago raised an insurrection and led 4,000 assassins out of, into the wilderness? Now stop there. We'll come back to the context in a moment. The commander, Claudius Lysias, he's not identified here, but later in chapter 23 and again in chapter 24, had made an assumption about Paul. And his assumption was he was an Egyptian revolutionary who had led a Jewish rebellion against the Roman rulers. He had led his followers into the wilderness, about 4,000 of them out into the wilderness. He duped them into believing that the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command and then they would overpower the Roman rulers. Well, it turned out to be a disaster is what it did. And he survived, according to history. That is, this Egyptian revolutionary survived. And Claudius Lysias assumes that this might, because he speaks Greek, he assumed Paul was that leader. Perhaps the basis was he spoke Greek, verse 37, and Egyptians speak Greek. <laughs> That's a far fetch. That's like someone accusing you of a crime because the, uh, robbing the bank because the bank robber speaks English. You speak English. Well, okay, then <laughs> you must be the bank robber. That's a big jump. And I want to suggest to you there are people today that make the same kind of unfounded assumptions. They assume things the text doesn't say. Well, that is not revealed in the scripture, but they assume that's what the text means. They make a lot of assumptions that are not there. They put two and two together and they come up with six. They assume what's not being said sometimes in conversations and they respond without knowing the information. They assume what you're about to say. They assume what you are saying without listening to what you're saying. And then they respond to that. You ever have that happen? Well, what they're saying back to you is not anything that you had just stated Maybe it's a disagreement you're having, not even over spiritual things, but you're just having a disagreement and they're responding with things you think, where did that come from? It's because they're not listening to you. They're making assumptions about you. Sometimes we assume motives without evidence. The reason you did that was, really, how do you know? That's like Claudius Lysias saying, you must be that Egyptian. They assume that one is guilty. And I cite verses 28 and 29 because that's where they said he must be guilty of taking a Jew into the, a Gentile or Greek into the temple because we saw him with Trophimus yesterday and he's in the temple today. He must have took him there. That's another big gentleman, uh, 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 mental gymnastics to jump from one point to the other. But let's look at one more. There was the man who was in search for the truth, verse 33. And this is Claudius Lysias. I don't mean he was looking for the truth, though we'll make application to the truth of the gospel. He was looking for the truth of what's going on in this circumstance. And look at verse 33. The commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. Claudius Lysias wants to find out some fact. He wants to know who he was. Who is this man that's being, that this uproar is all about? Who is that? And the second question I want to know, what's the charge against him? What's he done? He must have done something or this uproar wouldn't be taking place. And I want to know what that's all about. He's searching for answers. Those are good questions, by the way. Who is he and what's he done? I want to know the truth about that. 
Apparently, he's willing to give up assumptions, though he made some himself, and his first impressions. Because, beginning at verse 37, may I speak? And he said, well, yeah, you can. Are you that Egyptian that led that insurrection? He was willing to let Paul speak for himself, which suggested verse 40, when he'd been given permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands and he begins to speak. And his defense is recorded in Acts chapter 22, which is another story within itself, but he let Paul speak for himself. He was searching for the truth. He's searching for some answers. And I want to suggest to you those who are seeking the truth, like the Bereans in Acts 17 verse 11, they search the scriptures daily whether the things were so. They're searching for the truth. How so? They're seeking to know the facts. Jesus said that word is truth I want to know what the word says where does the word teach that if you're searching for the truth your question is always going to be where is that taught in the book show me in the book where is the verse that teaches that I want to know the truth where is the book teach that I want the book the chapter and the verse or where is the verse from which you get that evidence like we saw this morning from Psalm 110 in our Bible class we're searching for answers if we're searching for the truth. We're willing to change our view and give up preconceived ideas. My idea may have been different, but I want to know the truth. And that makes a difference. Well, these are not the only characters that are mentioned there. There are several characters mentioned that we didn't even name, didn't even talk about in this historical account in Acts chapter 21. But these were people who made a difference. There was a man whose children spoke volumes. There was a man whose heart was breaking because someone was trying to keep him from doing what he knew to be right, what he needed to do, what he wanted to do. It was in service to the Lord. There were people who were misinformed. There was the man who demonstrated his conviction, and there was the people who caught up in a mob. And there was the man who made assumptions. There was the man who was searching for the truth. Where do you plug in in this group of people? Do your children speak volumes concerning you? Or is your heart breaking because someone is trying to get you to do something contrary to your determination? Are you demonstrating your convictions? Are you caught up in the mob mentality? Are you making assumptions? Are you searching for the truth? Where do you plug in into the story and the history of Acts chapter 21? There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?